Welcome to the Whose Body Is It podcast. I'm your host, Isabella Malvin. For those of you who don't know me, I'm a birth worker, life coach for sovereign women, hypnotist, and a former liberal feminist turned radical truth teller. On this podcast, I expose the forces at play attempting to control our minds and bodies, such as transgender ideology, porn, prostitution, and so much more. Together, we'll untangle patriarchal lies as you listen to jaw-dropping interviews with women from around the world. Warning, while listening to this podcast, you might find yourself triggered or perhaps notice where you've been biting your tongue on the issues that matter most to you. In my coaching, I help women stop getting triggered by every freaking thing, cultivate resilience, stop unwanted behaviors, and increase self-confidence. You can book your first session at whosebodyisit.com. And I want to just say that it's because of your endless support that I'm able to interview amazing women, get their stories out, and produce regular episodes for all of you. So with that being said, please like, comment, and subscribe to my channel on YouTube. And if you're just listening in, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and consider making a financial contribution via the link in the show notes. You can also visit my activist sticker shop. My pro-woman stickers have the power to intercept transhumanist programming. So be sure to take a photo of your stickers out in the wild and tag me on Instagram at whose body is it? Without further ado, let's get into this week's story. Today, I'm joined by Michelle Evans to discuss the landscape girls face in light of increasing forms of sex-based oppression and the role parents are playing in protecting children in and out of schools. Michelle shares how she became active in combating gender ideology, the damaging messages sent when children are, quote, socially transitioned, and the sacrifices girls are forced to make as female-only spaces diminish in schools. We discuss the insidious games being played behind the scenes of the school board meetings, the attack on parental rights, including the overreach of schools identifying kids as trans preemptively, and some of the current weaknesses that we must overcome to make effective change against this ideology. Michelle shares her successes organizing both single-issue groups and larger groups with other concerned parents and community members, and offers insight for parents wanting to take action. Thank you so much, Michelle, for taking the time to, to talk with me about so many, so many issues today, but you know, we are going to be focusing on the gender issue in, in schools uh, you know, a lot of women who listen to the, the podcast are, are mothers and are, you know, feeling isolated and are perhaps even afraid to come out amongst their friends, uh, you know, on their, their stance and, and mm-hmm. fears about gender ideology in the schools and what you've been able to do. I'm, I'm so excited to hear all about that and, and hear how women can, you know, really band together, you know, mothers and school boards and whatnot. Um, so before we get into that, when did this become an issue in your life, you know, in your kid's school? It didn't pop up until 2021 for me. Um, I guess I had just sort of assumed that Texas 
had already passed a bathroom bill. So the problem had been solved. I really wasn't paying enough attention. But then um, I kept hearing chatter about the Save Women's Sports Bill. And I wanted to know what that was about because there were coordinated days to go up to the Capitol and um, fight in favor of this bill, testify, et cetera. So I watched a couple of the hearings and was really surprised that this was still in question. Um, And then in November, this was after the Save Women's Sports Bill finally passed in the third special session. In November, um, it was released in a newspaper article here in Round Rock, Texas, that um, a mother of a high school student reported that her daughter and her daughter's female bandmate were changing um, out of their band uniforms after school in the girls' locker room. And a biological male, a student they knew was male, came into the bathroom and they began to get uncomfortable, but they, they, in, initially sort of questioned that discomfort because they didn't want to be um, called a bigot or they didn't want to shame him or make him feel bad, which is in and of itself, it's a whole issue. But um, they went to the administration, the parents and the child, and the administration basically threw their hands up and said, if they want to change in a gender neutral bathroom, if they're uncomfortable, that's fine. But this boy gets to have access to the girl's locker room because the boy's parents had said that a gender neutral bathroom was not an appropriate accommodation for him. Um, So we brought it up. I I reached out to um, an organization here called Texas values who I know had lobbied in favor of the state women's sports bill. And a woman that works there gave me information for people like Beth Seltzer, who then gave me information for you. And it just kind of snowballed. We had a school board meeting, um, where they seems to me they intentionally put off public comment for quote unquote non-agenda items because it wasn't brought to the forefront, even though I'd emailed the board about the issue. Um, they pushed off public comment on that until what was it, 2:30 in the morning? It was very late. <laughs> but we held out. Most of us held out. Um, and then from there, I just continued to follow the issue, delve a little bit deeper, read a few books, watch a couple of documentaries, speak to more people about it. Um, And it just, it all unraveled from there. A few years ago when my daughter was 11, she, she confided in me that she was attracted to girls and I gave her the room to sort of explore that and talk that out and um, think about it. I made it clear, like, no matter what, you're too young to, act on anything, but if you're attracted to girls, that's, that's, you are who you are. And I love you anyway. But then she asked me to refer to her as they, them. And this was within a couple of months. Um, and I put a hard stop on that. It wasn't going to happen. I, I said, I birthed you. I carried you. I am fully aware, you know, I've raised you up until now. And I'm, I know who you are and what you are. And I don't see any reason for you to change that. And so it wasn't until I started to really explore the ideology behind that, that I understood that that is a very common trajectory for teenage girls, much more common than it ever was. Um, And it really, it became much more personal at that point. 
Wow. Wow. And, and so were you and your husband on the same page about? Um, well, her, her dad and I are, are not together anymore. Um, and I am remarried. Mm-hmm. Her stepfather sort of let me take the reins on it. He was a little shocked. And especially after we kind of made this safe space for her to, to think about it, because then it was like, well, I'm pansexual. Well, I'm bisexual. Well, it was like changing every moment. Um, and I allowed her to vocalize it. And she was kind of, after she understood that this was safe, she was really upfront about it. And so that kind of turned him off a little bit because he was raised Lutheran and this just wasn't, um, fitting into his, the worldview that he had for a very long time. Um, that's evolved over time, but, um, it just didn't, it was very hard for him to, to make sense of it, especially with new terms that we couldn't even define. Um, but she was very hesitant to tell other people in the family, especially, I don't think she asked anybody else about the, the, um, pro, the preferred pronouns issue. I think it was just me. And then it ended there. Mm-hmm. And I can say that with the utmost confidence, she is actually a lot more comfortable with herself now than she was then. So it wasn't an issue of like, I said no, and she became, you know, very an- anxious or depressed or suicidal. Actually, she became much more confident in herself, much more comfortable in her own body with the changes that occurred over the, the years after that. Mm-hmm. So I have no, absolutely no regrets about that. Wow. What are the other things you, you relayed to her? I mean, was it a pretty consistent pursuit on her end or do you feel like you really addressed it head on and really like set the tone so much that she was able to like release it? What do you think? What do you think did it for her? After she started pushing the limits and was like, well, I'm bisexual, I'm pansexual. Um, she got to the point where I thought that she was being a little bit too open because it became, you know, she posted on Instagram something about like the definition of pansexual is being sexually attracted, yada, yada, yada. And she's 12. And I said, you need to take that off. We're not talking, you're not a 12 year old that's going to talk about sexual attraction online. Um, and, and at that point we talked about it a little bit more and then we just made it a non-issue. It, we just, it wasn't like, Hey, here's my gay daughter. Or, I mean, I refer to it at times, but it's not what I lead with. And it's not something, it's not the first thing I use as a descriptor for her. It's she's a great daughter. She's a tall daughter. She's a smart daughter, but she's not my gay daughter. And now since the, the sports issue came up and then the bathroom issue, especially she started to understand how, um, potentially risky. This is this entire ideology, because I explained to her, like, these are, these are boys, full boys with, you know, every biological part that you don't have that they have. And, and at that point she was like, wait, so if I'm in the bathroom and I'm on my cycle, like I'm going to be sharing that space with a a boy. And it, it all came together at that point. And so she, she's still not, I mean, she doesn't really date. She doesn't talk about 
crushes or anything like that. She's a pretty focused kid. She has friends and she goes to school and that's where it ends. But she does understand now that boys are boys, girls are girls. Mm, Wow. I feel like so, just so much sadness, just thinking about all the girls who don't have moms like you, who are like sitting with that discomfort, being told that this is normal, that this is good. And like the fear the, right. uh, around simple things that, I mean, maybe I took for granted in middle school, or, you mm-hmm. know, just being able to like change my pad comfortably in the bathroom. I mean, I, I, I had an experience in, in kindergarten and first grade where there was, you know, there was this boy who would open the door to the girl's bathroom because we didn't have locks because we were so little that kids would, you know, lock themselves in right. and it created so much fear amongst the, the little girls that, that I, for one, you know, the result of that was holding in pee all day long that resulted in bladder, you know, infections and incontinence and a whole slew of issues. You know, when you mentioned what the school recommended that the girls could just, that they had the option to go in what a a, a single gender neutral bathroom that they can just withdraw if they want, you know, they don't have to use that. Okay. But if they don't have to, the result of that is waiting in a long line for one private bathroom or, or not peeing and suffering the consequences, you know, it, it, especially, I mean, it's so messed up on so many levels, but just understanding the difference in physiology of, you know, the way that men pee versus the way that girls be like, girls can't just go out and it's a bit more complicated (laughs) to just like pop a squat, you know, we can do it, but it's a little more involved uh, than just a a man taking his penis out and peeing on, you know, outside. So it's just, wow. I mean, and it's hard enough for a teenage girl to change in front of another teenage girl. When you think about it, it's like you're, there's a lot of scrutiny. There's mean girls, that kind of behavior. Mm -hmm. You throw a biological male into that mix. And it's like, you don't, you have no agency over your body anymore. It's like your body is just something to be looked at all the time, taken apart. You know, it's, there's enough shame around a woman's period or girl's period or girl's using the bathroom for pee or to poop or whatever. Like people don't want to think about things like that. So, and girls don't want to associate with it. So to have a a boy in there, it's just, there's, I can't even imagine the amount of discomfort and fear that goes into it. And then, you know, going back to how that high schooler initially responded, how she had that innate feeling like there's something wrong here but then questioned it. So we're driving this, this idea that even if you're fearful or even if you're instinctively uncomfortable, you need to be quiet about it because God forbid that boy should feel ashamed of his identity that day, or God forbid that boy isn't given access, full access to basically any bathroom he wants. It's, it's such a a harmful message that we're sending to girls that first of all, it's, it sucks being a girl or whatever. You have cramps, you have periods, you have 
boobs that are developing. Maybe they're too big. Maybe they're too small, whatever. Um, how hard it is to be a girl, how girls are not as strong as, you know, whatever. And then we have, we are actively taking away their ability to consent or to be modest. Yeah. It's a terrible path. Yeah. And it's, it's just, it's, you know, along with queer theory, it's just have no boundaries. Like boundaries right. are um, not needed. Like welcome to this boundaryless utopia where anyone can be anything and, and anything goes and try anything. And mm-hmm. if you do, as you said, encounter fear or um, hesitation, that is, you know, a sign that you have a lot of inner work to do and that you have this inner bigotry or phobia. And it's, you know, this is a time that, that girls and young women need to be, I think, practicing asserting their boundaries in in any way that they can. And um, I I heard something interesting. I think it was Sasha Ayad, who is the, one of the only kind of very um, outwardly non-affirming therapists who works with like gender questioning youth. And she talked about the, um, the assertion, you know, the, the, a child coming home and saying, you're going to call me, they, then like that intention or that like attempt is a sincere kind of like expression of, of, of like pushing boundaries or exerting boundaries or like claiming your identity for the first time apart from your parents, you know, obviously the execution of that and what that leads to, like we are totally against, but there is a positive intention there from the child to, to be like, where are my boundaries in the world? Maybe my boundaries in the world are, are saying that this is my new name. This is who I am. You know, there, it's like, so yeah, I mean, it is an important time to be able to exert those boundaries and with gender identity. I mean, it's not, it's not boundary setting. It's like, dictatorship and right. re- reality denial. There's this whole um, faction of parents that have, have shown up to school board meetings and they parade around the idea that their child is trans. They're, they wear a trans flag shirt. It's like they're, they're moving along with their child on this. They're so desperate to make their child feel accepted. I was speaking to somebody the other day who's involved um, with this, this, this pushback um, for queer theory and gender ideology. And what she said was most of the parents that I work with, these parents that are, that have kids that have come to them wanting to transition, most of those parents are quote unquote allies. They're not, you know, conservative. um, They're not bigots. They're not, they're not anti LGB. They're none of that. These are parents who have kind of given a ton of room. They're boundaryless. Like you can explore whatever because a child is sexual from birth or a child has a right to sexuality or something like that. And so they have to come up with these new limits to push, which, you know, goes into what you were saying where they, they just show up and they're like, okay, well, maybe this is where and that, and now we're seeing this huge explosion in terminology to spirits. I, I honestly have not really delved into that, but that's, that's relatively new here. It's one of those, the, the alphabet terms that's being 
just spewed out during school board meetings. We need to affirm these students. We need to make policies for these students. And every month we just add to that. It doesn't end at 2S, it's plus, which means literally it's infinite, infinite. It's just an attempt to be a normal child in an abnormal, under abnormal circumstances. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I appreciate it on, you know, on your platform, on, on your site where you were saying like, Hey, let's bring back like English and math (laughs) and like (laughs) the stuff that like kids used to, you know, used to be the the focus of of school and schooling, not to, not to put like public, the public school system on, on a pedestal by any means, but like, wow, like how much time and energy, I mean, rightfully, like we need to protect kids in this way, but how much energy are we diverting from what kids like, or are they are purposely diverting, you know, energy away from what parents send their kids to school for, which is to right. learn and to be in like, to learn social skills and to relate with one and not to be groomed for a lifetime of pharmaceutical dependence and like mm-hmm. be, be, you know, targets for pedophilia and like uh, middle school, sex i mean sex at age 11 age of 12 you know it's 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 totally out of this world and when you were talking about the parents perhaps parents who are affirming their kids and who are committed to the idea that their kids are trans and wearing the trans flags you know i wonder if you have a sense on the the parallels like are those parents also uh super tied to vaccines and <laughs> mandated medicine and the, you know, the medical industrial complex. Like, do you find that there's typically a connection there? Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, it's, I would say it's funny, but it's, it's not, you go into, well, perhaps not the most recent one. Cause the CDC says now you don't have to wear a mask, but in the last nine months, if you went into a school board meeting, you would see a great divide half of the room would be masked. The other half of the room would be unmasked. Obviously unmasked parents are Mm anti-mandate for masks and vaccines, but the other side of the room is talking about, you know, affirmative approach to, to teaching, you know, making a safe space for students, because if they don't feel safe and affirmed, then they're not going to learn, which I take issue with, but, and they're also, obviously they're, they're, pro-mask, pro-mandate. Mm-hmm. If there's a guy that's that's spoken several times and he almost refused to send his child back to in-person learning without a, a vaccine mandate. But ultimately, I think that our, our school stopped doing virtual learning, so they didn't have that option. And he had to send her back to class as far as I know. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, there is definitely a huge parallel between the two. Mm-hmm. And how big is this, this school? This is a, a public school, correct? Yes. It's a Round Rock Independent School District. Okay. And how big is the school just approximately? 47,000 students. Wow. Wow. So quite big. So maybe, maybe take us through like how you got involved. You know, you, you described like kind of the personal experience that what happened within your family, with your daughter. I mean, how did it transform into taking action with the school, forming committees, forming boards? You know, you said you mm-hmm. had been following what was going on with women's sports, but can you talk specifically about what you were able to accomplish 
um, within the, um, the school district? Um, so because there are a lot of parallels between these, these two issues, the anti-mandate parents that I had befriended at, form, at past school board meetings were equally appalled by the, the bathroom issue. I'm going to just loosely call it that. Um, and they were also at the same time doing FOIA requests to the district to figure out what curriculum was being used. Is it, is there CRT? Is there gender ideology? Um, we have stumbled, we've had some stumbling blocks in there and that some of this isn't official curriculum. Some of it is just, you know, what they brought into the classroom that day or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have had really good luck with creating a couple of single issue groups um, for people who are just laser focused, um, assisting each other with that. But then we have some bigger groups like Moms for Liberty, um, which is basically a parent group, parents, grandparents, community members, stakeholders who are fighting back against the um, erosion of parental rights, particularly in public education. So they popped up in Florida, I believe in early 2021. So they've been around a little over a year, but they've been able to um, expand into all states, I think. Um, They have chapters across the United States and we have a Williamson County chapter here. I kind of branched out on my own to start speaking at school board meetings, kind of came out of nowhere. So a lot of these parents had been in the district for a really long time and been really active and I admittedly had not been. And so when I started speaking out and I was able to use some of my past knowledge of legislation and, and things like that, there, you know, p- people are able to see where you can bring value to their organization. So I became a part of Moms for Liberty, assisting them with their monthly meetings and getting people together and disseminating information. Um, and then there's a pack that just formed here because we have four school board seats open in November. Mm-hmm. So we've got a pack of very concerned parents who are trying to vet school board candidates so we can really make a difference um, when these seats are up to see that they get flipped. Wow. And then what is your, your history with legislation and, and were you involved, you were involved in politics before all of this? Is that right? Yes. Okay. So in 2015, um, people may remember that was like the year of the measles. So we had the Disneyland measles outbreak yeah. and it was a legislative year. So here in Texas, legislators only meet every other year, the odd number of years. In January, we kind of got, or in February, we got um, an inkling that a Republican House member out of Dallas was going to file a bill mm-hmm. to take away the reasons of conscious exemptions for child, um, childhood vaccines to go to public school. And so myself and a couple other moms got together and thought, like, we have to do something about this. I had worked with some organizations um, over the years that really talked about vaccine safety and the corrupt <laughs> system and the government when it comes to vaccines specifically. Mm-hmm. So I had some prior knowledge, but had never done anything legislatively. Um, and I had some, some time on my hands. I had the, I was blessed that my mom could come in and watch my kids so I could go to the Capitol mm-hmm. all the time, knock on doors, 
learn the process, testify at hearings, et cetera. So I kind of knew a little about, you know, what's effective messaging and what's the best way to get things moving along. Um, and I stepped out of that um, after Texans for Vaccine Choice formally formed into a 501c3, 501c4, and a PAC. And we vetted candidates for the next um, election. I stepped back to focus on my family. I had, I have a child who's deaf and at the time was severely autistic. So, um, and then my son had some chronic GI issues. So I just really wanted to take the time to focus on them. And between that time and I'd say 2020, 2021, I kind of had my head in the sand, like most parents, right? You don't think about school board that much. You definitely don't think about what happens at the Capitol that much, unless it's some high profile issue. Uh, so it's kind of insidious how they, they take, they took advantage of the fact that most people were so distracted by COVID and everything that, that was downstream from COVID, the restrictions, the closures, the loss of jobs, loss of life. Um, I think they took advantage of that. When I say they, I mean, people who were elected to school board that didn't have the best of intentions, people who create curriculum, um, people who create these quote unquote anti-bullying programs, you know, the, the pedagogues, they really took advantage of us not paying as much attention as we should but they've awakened a sleeping giant. So <laughs> good luck to them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Texans for vaccine choice has been so, I think, instrumental, right. In really holding it down here. And I think yeah. so many people moved, myself included, moved to the state of Texas, you know, for a better, like a, a more open, free kind of experience on, on many levels. And after, you know, going to a bunch of the Texans for Vaccine Choice events, like I really was like, wow, this is actually really fragile. Like it, nothing here is guaranteed. Right. Like we have a lot going on that's going in our favor and it requires constant advocacy, constant raising awareness and, and real, a real commitment to, you know, kind of the core values of, of the state of Texas. And yeah. So that's been a rude awakening too. It's like, okay, well, I'm, well, I'm here now, but like, what am I willing to do to keep it this way? And I think, you know, a lot of, uh, wonderful women that I am friends with and kind of support in, in, a, whether that's through their births or through, you know, life or whatever, um, have taken more of a withdrawal strategy, which I don't have judgment over. I think that's actually probably the route I would go. If I had kids, I would probably be homeschooling or unschooling. And I think that isn't available or necessarily a priority to everyone, you know, who Not has right. children at this point. Right. right? And so it's, I, I really want to emphasize the, the kind of the practical steps and, and what is possible if, a family is committed to staying within the public school system or even a, a, a private Waldorf school or whatever it is. Like if you were committed to having your kids still go to a school, like how much are you willing to do? Are you willing to get a copy of the curriculum? Are you willing to form a board? Are you willing to hold it down? You know, and, and so I, I love that, that you are, you and, and the other mothers, you know, of the, of the Round Rock school district have been able to, to really model that and do that. And there's plenty of us that don't have kids in the school system anymore. Mm -hmm. They, they did take their kids out of Round Rock public schools, mm -hmm. but 
the, I, the ideal situation would be us being comfortable sending them back. Um, yeah. And regardless, Round Rock ISD has no problem taking our money. So we at least have mm-hmm. a standing, you know, as a taxpayer, like, listen, a majority of my property taxes each year, 56, 60% goes to Round Rock ISD. Um, and what happens when, unfortunately, fortunately, unfortunately, we have the freedom to withdraw our kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and that does send a message to the district that something is happening. You know, that's happened over the last two years, three to 4,000 students have unenrolled, but their solution so far has just been to close the, the enrollment budget gap by raising the tax rate higher than they had intended to before. So it's like, instead of addressing the underlying issues, they're just going to throw money at it and hope that that helps. And it's, it's not, it's, this is not a problem. That's not going, you know, it's, we're not going away. Mm -hmm. We're not going to be quiet about it. We're just going to continue to grow in numbers. And if it's not masks today, it's going to be gender ideology the next day, or it's going to be something that actually does matter to some of those people that were pro mask mandate. And they'll start to understand like, this is freedom. This is Liberty. This is our children. And I don't agree with how this is, this is going down. I'm curious about the, the parameters of the school nurse. Like, have you had interactions with the like the, the school, I mean, I gotta feel like you, I probably have, if you're <laughs> dealing with gender identity and mass, but what, what is like kind of, I don't know, maybe standard protocol these days for like what a school nurse offers. Yeah. Like in my, like when I went to school, like I I would get in trouble from, for going to the nurse too many times just to avoid class. And she right. would, her, her trick would just be to give us like a cup of water. So we were complaining about something, you know, she'd be like, here's a, here's a cup of water. Like she wasn't right. actually dismissing like serious issues, but like, you know, like now I imagine you go to the school nurse and it might be a similar experience, to like going to the school counselor where all of a sudden she's giving, is she, can she give referrals? I mean, I know Planned Parenthood can no longer, um, offer consultations to minors for, uh, wrong sex hormones, even with a parent present, they're not allowed to do that anymore. But yeah, I guess I'm, I'm curious about the school nurse situation. (laughs) Um, there has been some training and I think it was out of North Texas that, um, a friend of mine had gotten a hold of that was trying to get nurses to be affirmative. So, um, a kid, says that they're, they're questioning something, or maybe a nurse or teacher identifies them as maybe a little bit non-conforming, which yes, and that's happened. There's a lawsuit in California that, um, I believe it's child and parental rights. They have taken that up on behalf of, um, parents, a mom and a dad whose kid was identified by the school, actively identified by the school, not the child going to the school and saying, you know, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence or I don't know. I want to kind of talk about this. And then from there providing opportunities for that kid to then socially transition at the school without the parent's knowledge. So, and I know that there's some, some cases with Alliance Defending Freedom, they they've taken on some of those cases as well. And we've had in this area, 
um, Leander is not far from me. It's a different school district, but it's in my County. Mm-hmm. They've had the issue of a transition closet for a couple of years and on at least two campuses where in fact, in one situation, parents called the school and said, do not let my son change. And they took that as their opportunity to do the opposite. He would show up with a change of clothes. They would give him, you know, a closet or a bathroom, staff bathroom to use to change and go about his day as a girl. And, you know, if God forbid his parents showed up early to pick him up, they would let him change back into his boy clothes before going out the door with them so that the parents didn't know. I mean, and it sounds like in that case, the, I mean, it sounds like in that case, the parents perhaps were regressive around like girl clothes versus boy clothes. Right. Right. And so the school saw that, but, but then the school like fueled the, the sextus kind of uh, parameters that were, that were set on this little boy. Like had they said, honey, you're a boy. Yeah. If you want to wear like a pink shirt and, you know, assuming that he didn't want to wear like a mini skirt that exposed his genitalia, you know, right. like assuming that he just wanted to wear like a long purple and pink striped skirt, you know, or whatever, like it, it just, it's like a, an issue that it, it turns into this sick pathology fueled, mm. you know, in some cases by sexist stereotypes and sounds like that kid may, maybe will grow up to be gay. I mean, we, we don't know. We try, you know, right. we're not going to sexualize children, but um, what's scary about that and, and anyone listening, like what's distinct about the school just letting him wear the clothes he wants to wear versus what they did, which is that what they did is they called him a different name and pretended that he was the opposite sex, which is so damaging psychologically, right. you know, this, so this idea of social transition being gentle or not, um, harmful because there aren't surgeries and, um, you know, hormones evolved is, is a total myth. It's absolutely, you are creating like a schizophrenic person. You are creating someone who has a fragmented identity. I mean, it's a gateway. It's a total gateway. And it's distinct yeah. from like acting or being in a container where you are playing, you know, where you are right. playful. It's every now the sudden the whole world is pretending that you are a different person and sex by, by day versus by night. I mean, it's wow. And beyond that, it's, you know, maybe we don't agree with what a parent is doing. Maybe we don't agree with their values. Um, but as a government entity or any sort of public entity, we shouldn't be taking the reins. And, you know, I spoke on this at the Andrew ISD board meeting and my point was not that Mm -hmm. his parents were right. I can't make that judgment. I'm not in their shoes, but I can say that when I was growing up, teachers were ideologically neutral. I didn't know anything about their personal lives. I didn't care to know anything about their personal lives. It wasn't a thing. It was just, they taught me during the school day. And then that was it. Um, I didn't know what, where they stood politically, you know, that wasn't ever a subject, but now these teachers and counselors and administrators are stepping over the line and it's, it's a complete just a a complete 
actively ignoring the um, the autonomy of the family unit in favor of, well, this this seems abusive to me. Well, okay. If some if a situation seems abusive, you're a mandated reporter. Call CPS. Get them involved. Right. You know, I I agree with you. And like the parents were totally like have the right, whether I think it's sexist or regressive. The parents still do have the right to determine what their kid, you know, wears to school. I mean, in the same way that my mom had the right to determine like how short my skirt was, like what was too short by her standards versus my standards were totally different. And at the end of the day, like it was up to her. And had she sent me to school like I'm imagining her saying, okay, honey, you need to wear a skirt that's this long. And then the school saying, oh, don't worry about her. When you right. get here, you're going to wear, you're going to wear like a skirt that, and then that's adding like a kind of a sexualized element to it, you know, which is slightly different, well, but well, maybe not different from right. perhaps what this school was encouraging and allowing, but um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And these, you know, this is the the excuse that's being used or the validation that's being used is that we don't want to hurt these children. You know, we need to protect these children. Um, but the, the reality is that it's not protection. It's got nothing to do with protection. It's a, it's a flawed ideology in that they believe that if these kids aren't allowed to change clothes, that they're going to somehow go home and off themselves. And, and I'm not dismissing the fact that this population of kids does have an increased risk for suicide, but that's before and after transition. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like we're doing them a favor no. by sending them down this path that, you know, once it's started, it's hard to, to turn back. It's hard for that kid to make sense of wanting to turn back. And it's hard for the family to think that they can. Because everyone else is telling them this is this is not changeable. This is how your kid is, and you need to just deal with it and and change their body to match their their brain. I, I spoke to Mary Lou Singleton. I don't know if you, you know Mary Lou Singleton. She's a, um, a incredible health practitioner and midwife out in Albuquerque, holding you know mm. with medical freedom values and just amazing. And and she's been speaking on the harms of gender ideology. I think for at least ten years and. She said something to me that was really interesting, which is that the work that she has done, I think with, with detransitioners, detransitioned youth, um, she said that the kids who detransition are, are not only necessarily like suicide might be a part of their trajectory or contemplating or formally contemplated suicide, but they also had a concern about their parents committing suicide. Oh, gosh, you know, if you think about parents who are totally affirmative, who save up tens of thousands of dollars to make this happen, who mourn the loss of their former, you know, child, the, the, their child's former identity, their dead name, all of that. Right. And then the kid becomes this new persona. Their body is permanently mutilated and they go, mom, I made a mistake. Dad, I made a mistake. You know, then the parents have to face, holy shit, I let this happen. Mm-hmm. It's the, I mean, a kid's, every kid's worst fear, I think, you know, emotional fear is disappointing an adult. Yeah. That was always for me, like disappointing my parents was, mm-hmm. ugh, that was like stabbed in the heart. 
my daughter is the same way. She doesn't want to disappoint people. And, um, so I, I, I get that. I can, I can see that. And what a burden you're putting on children, um, to think that, you know, the burden you're putting on parents, the burden you're putting on kids, the burden you're putting on teachers, everyone is just, it, when you fall in lockstep with this, there's so much potential misery that comes as a result. And uh, I don't think we're any better off as a society since it's become so pervasive. No. And the idea that this is set in stone by such a young age, like two, two years old, three years old, four years old. I I take huge issue with that because then it it comes back to that consent idea, right? It comes back to like, when is a child old enough to make an adult decision Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and across the board in this country, we, I thought we had already kind of figured that out. Um, that it's not, it's not fully arbitrary. I mean, I know that some States allow sex at a certain age and it's younger than we allow in Texas or whatnot. And with these arbitrary, like, you know, if an adult's within a certain number of years of the child, then it's not considered statutory or whatever. I just, I, I want us to stop pushing that further and further down because it's, it's got such mm-hmm. harmful consequences. Yeah. 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 And, and for the record, for anyone who didn't already like pick this up, like what you described the process with your daughter, like, let's just, mm. let's just repeat it for anyone who, who like is new to this dialogue. Like the T is entirely distinct from the LGB, right? right. I mean, they're interconnected in the way that the T has kind of taken off, but the phenomena of T versus same sex attraction is entirely distinct. And within, you know, your school district in, in many schools, what's going on is there's a conflation and there's, and that's where the accusations of bigotry and, and whatnot, you know, start to start to come out. I mean, has anyone, you know, I know if you're, for, I don't know if you're familiar with Jennifer Billick's work, she talks about the money. Yeah. So has that been a kind of a successful talking point within, would you say within parent circles, like talking about the, anyone who's kind of on the edge or talking to people currently in power, you know, who are on the board, has that been successful talking about the corporatism element? So, you know, the, this is one of the disadvantages I would say, or one of the challenges amongst conservatives is they understand and they know that the, the surgeries are, um, they're mutilation and they're unethical. They don't want to talk about them. You know, you don't want to talk about kids genitals. You don't want to talk about the horrors that are involved Um, And so there's not a lot of discussion about the downstream effects of this ideology. There's not a lot of discussion about the surgery Mm -hmm. in detail, surgeries in detail, or who's profiting. Um, It's more, it's been isolated locally to what's being taught in schools, but not necessarily where that goes. Now, the conversation has come to the forefront in that our attorney general released an opinion about it saying that it could be considered child abuse. And then the 
that triggered the governor to Mm -hmm. tell Department of Family and Protective Services, yes, you may investigate certain families who are seeking this quote unquote affirming health care. And a couple of hospital systems stopped offering um, this these services Mm -hmm. because it wasn't not because it was unethical, but because malpractice insurers were dropping them and they never know they no longer had that protection. Um, it's one of those layers that most people have not quite peeled back yet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's hard when you rabbit hold, (laughs) when you rabbit hole down this, it's like, it's, it, it becomes tough. I got to like shelve it sometimes because it gets so emotionally exhausting, but it's one of those things where I, I have to have the uncomfortable conversations with my friends, with my colleagues, with my kids, if necessary, because one, one of my kids who goes to a school in South Austin, she expressed to me that she thought that I don't respect trans people. So I had to have a conversation with her about what that means and what, how she understands it to mean. And when you break it down to the the bare facts, it's, it becomes a little bit easier for a child to wrap their head around. Like you're born this way. You have certain things that your brother doesn't have. Um, and you can't change that. It doesn't make you a woman. If you get rid of that, um, because internally you're still what you are. Um, so I think we, we have to continue to not necessarily push the envelope. I don't want to put any like graphic imagery in front of anyone, but I do want to have that conversation with people about what this, what this turns into. If we push and push and push, if we continue to affirm. Yeah. The graphic imagery element is interesting because it's, uh, it's for most people, I I think it's so abstract, right? We Mm. see the before and the after, but we don't see the in-between. We don't see post-op. We don't see the bacterial infections. We don't see the parents who are affirming draining the fluid from, you know, their daughter's chest after her, their 13, 14 year old has had, you know, her, her breast tissue removed. I mean, Mm -hmm. we don't, that's, that is the really ugly, dark part. And it's the literal, you know, manipulation and removal of flesh that, that gets lost. So I I totally hear that maybe not being the best strategy because it it can, you know, it, it can appear to be like totally inflammatory and like can really turn people off and, I mean, how else, I don't know how else at this point we're, we're going to get through, you know, each, each person has right. different motivations and, and, mm-hmm. you know, but so much, I mean, we were talking about before we were recording, we were talking about, um, you know, your experience with natural birth and, and that being a huge part of, of your life and your journey and, and, and someone who perhaps doesn't see the value in that, or, you know, has normalized, uh, infant male circumcision or has mm-hmm. normalized, you know, um, like many of us ha- have been, you know, conditioned to believe that nine injections at one, what's called the well right. baby visit, you know, is normal as long as it's done right. on different limbs, you know, so we have been so desensitized. So I feel like the, the showing the surgical photos, stuff like that is like a, a desperate, a desperate attempt to say like, you this need is to all, resensitize. Like, yes. And it's all part of the same 
ideology overall. And, and it's, and it's driven not by, um, not necessarily by reality. It's driven by people who profit off of it. So it's, you know, if you want to scare a woman during birth, bring up the dead baby thing. You know, if you keep waiting, if you don't let us give you Pitocin, or if you don't let us do a C-section, that baby is going to die of a bacterial infection. They told me that when, um, the one time I had to go to the hospital, I was, it was a planned home birth, but my son came at 34 and a half weeks. So we had to go to the hospital and my water broke, but it then labor stalled after literally like two hours, the doctor came in and was like, we really need to speed this along because every hour that goes by, it's another, you know, it's a risk, but I had no fever, no, nothing like that. That was indicating that there was anything wrong. And I just straight up told him like, keep your hands out of me and we'll be fine. Like (laughs) you don't have to keep checking me. I'm good. It'll come when it comes. But, and that's the same thing that they used with the measles thing. And they, they, frankly, they used it with COVID as well. It's like, would you rather have a dead baby or a live baby? Same thing with the trans ideology. Would you rather have a dead son or a living girl? You're not really giving concerned parents on an option to say no. And in this case, well, and same with, if you, if you question in any way, vaccine mandates, you're an anti-vaxxer and that's used as a pejorative. And it's, you know, obviously it's used to diminish um, a lot of the reality. And if you question gender ideology, you're a transphobe or you're a homophobe, which is Mm -hmm. such a complete fallacy considering this gender ideology is probably the most homophobic thing that I've ever encountered in my life. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it's, I've been called every, every name in the book because I kind of, <laughs> I buck every mandate or, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. trend, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe a, a note to end on, or is something I have curiosity about is what has it been like to be more visible, you know, to be someone that women come to and collaborate with and uh, look to for advice on, on these issues. I find it to be so personally empowering. You and I came to know each other because I just have a tendency to like, you know, if, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it big. And if I'm going to go to a school board meeting, I'm going to get people that really know about the subject to show up to. I want to bring everybody to the table. I want people who are knowledgeable about this to speak about this and not have it be just this like white suburban mom. So it's, it's been really personally empowering and gratifying to get the response that I've gotten from, you know, the, you, the ladies that went to the UN and the ladies that went to the NCAA championships to know that this is such a collective where every voice is welcome as long as we have the same, you know, goal in mind, the same end goal. Um, we talked a little bit about this before you started recording, you know, I'm very pro-life, you're personally pro-choice mm-hmm. and you kind of, you have to, the saying that I've always been a, a fan of is the enemy of my enemy is my friend. 
we may completely be divergent in other areas and you can take your time to advocate for that. And I'll take my time to advocate for that on my own time. But we agree on this and we agree about the urgency of this. Mm -hmm. And so your voting record means nothing to me. And I'm sure that's the same vice versa. And I think that this is an issue that should bridge uh, a huge gap because one thing that I've been really um, happy to learn about the the pushback, the movement, um, is that it's such a a pro-woman stance, pro-girl stance. This should be like unquestionable. Women and girls matter. They have value. We are unique in ways that are wonderful and ways that are not so great, but we bring to the table something that men could never do. And it's more than just the, the social construct of gender. It's got to do with our, bio, our biology, what we're able to do for society, what we're able to do for the world, the population, everything. There's no questioning that a mother has a specific instinct and that it is beneficial to everyone. Thank you so much, Michelle. I'm really excited. Thank you. Women to hear everything. So, and I'll, I'll be sure to link your website, um, and everything so that women can contact you, find you and follow you and vote for you. (laughs) Yes, please. (laughs) Yeah. The vote is huge. Um, the, I am taking on an incumbent in November who unfortunately believes all of the the dribble that we've talked about so far. So, um, it's time for a change. We need a, a warrior to stand up for women and girls. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support my work, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To stay in the loop for my latest coaching programs, hypnosis sessions, free resource guides, and more, follow me on Instagram at whosebodyisit and visit my website, whosebodyisit.com.